Welcome to Keystone Education Radio, the podcast for all things focused on education in Pennsylvania. Now here's your host, Annette Stevenson. The founders of Edible Classroom are on a mission to cultivate academic achievement, healthy lifestyles, and environmental stewardship through gardening-based experiential learning. On today's episode of Keystone Education Radio, I'm speaking with Grace Julian and Beth Horst, the masterminds behind this nonprofit who work with Lancaster area schools to get kids learning outside of the classroom and into the dirt to fulfill this mission. Thanks for joining us, Grace and Beth. Our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. Absolutely. So let's start by, if you wouldn't mind, telling us a bit about Edible Classroom and how you got started. Mm -hmm. Well, we're a nonprofit organization and we exist to teach children where real food comes from. We partner with schools and communities in the area to develop learning gardens where the students can see and touch and feel, smell, taste whole foods. Yeah, and we, so we got started, Grace and I had both independently started school gardens at our children's elementary schools and served as the volunteer garden coordinators there. So we were able to see a garden start to finish from the ground up, which was incredibly important and influential in what we did later. But as we got through the process and saw not only the value of it, but also how much work it took, we realized that this could be more than just a volunteer position. And in fact, started to research and found many organizations across the country, nonprofit garden organizations that we thought, okay, we need to bring this to Lancaster in a more formalized way. And we just knew the benefits of it. And so hence the Edible Classroom came to be formed. Great. And what year did did Edible Classroom formally begin? That would be 2017 in the spring of that year. Great. What are the ways that you might work with a school district and K through 12 age students? Right. Many of our schools look at the school garden as an on-site field trip for seed to harvest activities, as well as that refreshing brain break from the inside the classroom to the outside the classroom for students to explore and observe what's happening in nature. And so we provide um, regular garden education sometimes during the school day, and we always try to, well, we always incorporate the state standards, and we're very fortunate to be able to do that in a way that happens very organically, because everything that we do is really covered by a state standard, whether it be science, even starting with a seed packet, when you look at the seed packet and we're teaching the children to read the seed packet for the planting depth, for the days to harvest and calculating that. The nutritional value of the vegetables covers a food science standard. So we're integrating the science, the math, the nutrition, we do a lot of literature-based, you know, reading, uh, read-alouds with the children. And there are just, everything that we do is really just covered in the state standards without us having to really work to get it in there. It, it naturally fits. Mm-hmm. So we work in that way. And most That's- of our programs culminate with the eating element. That's the mm-hmm. edible classroom is our name. And that's mm-hmm. something that all children enjoy. Absolutely. That's it's a motivator, even if they don't at the beginning understand that they might be interested in the other aspects of it. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And we also offer garden camps, after school garden clubs, and then a variety of programs that are customized to really whatever a school wants or to whether another organization, an outside organization might, might want. So we do, you know, a variety of programs and we always have those similar elements that's, you know, the eating component is huge and the educational piece comes with the territory as we're talking about gardening the kids are learning without even knowing they're learning mm -hmm. so really the beauty of it is a garden can cover so many different bases and there's so many opportunities for a variety of programs so we kind of have a little bit of everything neat so i think on your website i read a bit about self-esteem right and so how does involving children in gardening improve self-esteem how does it relate to that Right. Well, there's definitely research that shows that gardening and outdoor education promote self-esteem. Um, I was just actually looking at a book that I had read a long time ago by Richard Lewiv called Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. And he mm -hmm. speaks to the, the way nature impacts just our emotional health and our emotional well-being by connecting us to the world around us. And as children are in a controlled environment many times where they are scheduled to do things. The outdoor environment allows freedom of exploration, freedom of observation that culminates just good mental health as they're able to self-direct. And we all know, and I think people are coming to realize even more so the mind-body connection. And so any wellness activity, anything that is good for our body health-wise is going to be good for our emotional and our mental health. And so we see it with the kids in the garden. We see when they make connections, how kids that may not normally love to learn by reading in a book or writing, make the connection by growing something, nurturing something and gaining confidence through doing that. And also let's talk about the science achievement scores. Is there a correlation between K through 12 students being involved in such a program and then actually the, on the science achievement side. Yes, there are documented research studies that show a correlation between higher science achievement and, you know, learning in a garden or having the garden as a teaching tool. And so it's actually one of the goals of ours to measure even more so as we can being relatively new and then with with COVID taking some things out of the loop. You know, we're really working to see how we can better measure what we're doing. And so as we are having these opportunities to repeat with schools and spend more time within the schools, we hope to evaluate that for ourselves. But we do know that when kids are learning hands-on, they're going to retain it so much better than if they're just listening to it in a traditional classroom. And the both, both of them are important and work hand-in-hand. Hand. So we can see the learning take place in the garden through the students' hands-on application of a topic that they heard about and now they're actually seeing in real life. Many of our teachers that we work with comment how appreciative they are of, say they just finished a lesson on seed germination and here we are out in the garden watering our little seedlings that just germinated from the last week when they were out planting. And so it's, it's a really nice layering of the education they're receiving in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And so we've talked about sort of ac the academic piece to some degree and the self-esteem piece. And then 
there is clearly a health benefit for the long-term, you know, this broader understanding of healthful foods that mm-hmm. may or may not be something that's being taught in every home. So it's hopefully bringing that information into, you know, a child's life for the long-term, just from having that experience. I have to just say this morning in one of our programs, we harvested lettuce and spinach and carrots and beets from the garden and we made salads and it was 23 children that came to this community garden space and every single one of them tried a salad and seemed to enjoy it. Nobody, everybody finished their salad. You know, we didn't make them huge. And we were able to to then connect and say, okay, you know, did it taste a little bit better because it was fresh from the garden? And then we also were able to talk about the nutritional value of the things that we eat. And we talked about things that are good to eat all the time and things that maybe you wanna reserve to some of the time so that the kids, I said, you know, try to keep moving things into the things that I should eat all of the time, fresh fruits and vegetables. And some of the things that you might really enjoy, the sodas or the McDonald's or whatever, mm-hmm. try to move those into the sum of the time. And so we were able to talk about the nutritional benefits and good fuel for our bodies that help us feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were very responsive to that. It was, it was really neat. It's mm-hmm. cool. A nice way to introduce those vegetables and, you know, that some kids are not as fond of. And so since you began in 2017, what are some of Edible Classroom's biggest impacts or accomplishments? If you have, you know, any that you can identify. Springboarding off what Beth just said, I think some of our biggest impacts are evidenced in the conversations we have with children Um, right out there in the school garden. Marley is a little fourth grader that last year said, my mom's going to be so surprised. I liked everything here and I never eat vegetables at home. And so here we are giving the children the opportunity to participate in the garden. And we find across the board that their investment in the process will not guarantee that they like everything, but it will open the door to curiosity to maybe trying what it is that they've been tending and watering. Um, we've been harvesting broccoli because tis the season here in our school mm-hmm. garden. And a little girl just this week said, I like it this time. She had tried broccoli before on other occasions, mm-hmm. didn't like it. But this time, after we planted it, watered it, read a book about it, she was more inclined to try it. And she ended up being the last child at the tasting table because she was anxious to try more. That's, that's pretty funny. I mean, first of all, the freshness, as you mentioned before, the freshness, I don't think that can be beat. And then having her hands on the actual process of growing, I'm sure had some incentive there, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, that's on the individual level, we see the impacts all the time. And just those are very meaningful to to us and what we do and reinforcing that we're doing what we're doing is really good for these kids. We knew it already, but just hearing that, but on a broader scale, when we look at the amount of produce we harvested last year over the summer and fall, almost 900 pounds of produce, 854 pounds. And we've you know, har- harvested more than that in the past too. So that is food that we are sending home with kids to their families for them to enjoy. We've been able to share it with food banks. We've been able to share it with um, apartment complexes 
uh, we've been able to partner with other organizations to help meet that need as well. And we were able to offer an outdoor classroom in the fall during COVID for parents who were looking for something when their kids weren't in school. Some kids were in school for two days and were out for three. So we offered an outdoor classroom so that they could um, have a meaningful place to go and could still do their schoolwork. We facilitated that, but then had the garden component as well. So mm. those are our ways that we feel have been so beneficial to build our community too. It goes beyond, we have the micro level that Grace shared and it just kind of fingers out into the community with the families and then the broader organizations and businesses that might be interested in what we're doing. And so that brings me kind of to my next question. If a school district is interested in working with you to get a program started, how do they begin? Where should they go? Well, on our website, there's a contact form. Um, they can look at www.theedibleclassroom.org. And there's a contact form on there. And our information is on there as well to reach out. And we love to meet with schools to try to facilitate whatever it is they want to do. We know that many schools want to get started and aren't sure how. And it was actually a catalyst for why we started an organization because many schools want to do this and don't have the time because they have so many responsibilities. So we are able to come in and direct the conversation to do what they wanna do and partner with them if they'd like our help or if they'd like to go it alone, we can help facilitate that depending on their volunteer base or we can do a combination of the two and really customize to what they would like. So it all starts at that first meeting and just hearing their vision and then putting the pieces together for them. Okay, and uh, you mentioned that there are summer camp programs, things like that. And then at home, if parents want to begin gardening with their children at home, do you have any suggestions for how to begin that in sort of a manageable way? And the reason I say manageable is, you know, if there's a family that doesn't already have a garden begun, how can they get started and kind of what's the ideal month to begin? Do you have any suggestions in that area? Yeah, we think starting small is always a good thing to do. So your family could pick a favorite vegetable to grow this year. It's not too late now. This is a good time to, you're in the beginning of summer to start these warm season crops. Pick your favorite and either start it from seed or purchase a plant at a local nursery. And if you don't have a place on your property where you can grow in the ground, you can easily start some crops in a container on a sunny patio or porch. That and sounds simple enough. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than head straight into a full-size garden, I think yeah. starting small will guarantee your success. And you mentioned the best time to plant here. The Farmer's Almanac and my grandmother would always say after, after Mother's Day is the best time to start these warm season crops. But I know I personally was out in the middle of February planting my peas just because I like to experiment. And that's traditionally a little bit early to plant your peas, but mid to end of February, we can start planting some of those early cool season crops like your leafy greens and lettuces. Hmm, okay, I didn't realize that. And so in your own gardens, just out of curiosity, what is your favorite thing to plant and grow? If each of you would answer that. I love to plant and grow tomatoes and I always plant too many. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you would think after years of doing this that I would stop planting so many, but I just can't help it. So 
we love to make fresh salsa. So having the tomatoes for fresh salsa and fresh um, tomato soup and fresh tomato sauce. So the tomatoes are so versatile that way. And it's something that everybody in our family loves the fresh salsa. So that's a winner. And everybody likes tomato sauce too. So the tomatoes are a win-win and they, they yield a lot for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And they're not too terribly labor intensive to harvest where peas and beans are. So they're mm -hmm. nice. They're a nice vegetable all the way around. Mm -hmm. They're actually a fruit, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Right. And so how about you, Grace? What do you like to plant and grow? I definitely go back to this mid-February planting of peas because mm. by the end of winter, I am ready to get out and dig in the dirt. Mm -hmm. So sugar snap peas are my favorite. They never make it into the kitchen. We eat them <laughs> full straight in the garden and uh, enjoy them that way. I love things. I love simply gardening simply and picking something straight from the vine and popping it in your mouth is a very simple way to eat. And I appreciate that in our very busy lifestyles. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. So I want to thank you for uh, highlighting your program to us. I think it sounds kind of phenomenal in the combination of the curriculum and the sort of overall health and well-being elements. That just seems to be a, just a really great you know, way for kids to kind of learn and also just benefit generally from it. So Thank you for explaining your program to us and for facilitating it. Thank you for having us. It was a Thank joy. Thank you, Annette. Keystone Education Radio is a production of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. This episode is brought to you in part by One Group Risk Management and Insurance, along with Substitute Teacher Service. Visit our website at keyedradio.org for more information on today's discussion and past episodes. Subscribe, share, and follow us on social media so you can stay tuned to new topics and interviews. This is Annette Stevenson saying thanks for listening to Keystone Education Radio. The views and opinions expressed on the Keystone Education Radio podcast are solely the views and opinions of our guests and do not reflect the views and opinions of the Pennsylvania School Boards Association. Thank you.